Good morning. Along with that, be praying for us as Eric leaves and that the church is still standing when he comes back in three months. <laughs> he, Eric's told us a lot of, given us a lot of information and told us what kind of dispersed all the duties. But I have a feeling there's a lot of little things Eric does that we don't really know about yet that will come up. So pray for us too. But I want to welcome you again to our service. Merry Christmas. We've entered the Christmas season. And I was in Atlanta for Thanksgiving, spending time with my daughter's family. Oh, no. This is going to happen again. <laughs> spending time with my daughter's family. And the day after Thanksgiving, we went to get a Christmas tree. And they get an eight-foot-tall tree. And it's really fun because Emily, my granddaughter, is now two years old, and it's all new for her. She likes to play with the ornaments, and she's allowed to play with the unbreakable ornaments, many of which I made out of fabric, specifically so the grandkids could play with them. But she puts them all on the same sagging branch, one after the other, and then she takes them off and puts them somewhere else, moves them around and plays with them, and it's fun with little ones. But then I came home, and like I do every year, I thought long and hard about whether I was going to put up a Christmas tree in my own home. And you know, it's a lot of work when you're single and old. And I get why a lot of people don't do it or get an artificial tree, but I like a real tree. And so far every year and this year, I've made the trek to Home Depot to get a tree no taller than me, which is the limit of what I can carry, put in my trunk, and wrestle into the house and into the tree stand. But I don't do it for kids anymore. I don't do it because it's fun, but I do it because it has meaning for me. There's something about the feel of a real tree, the smell, the mess, the hard work, and I feel good that I can still do it. And I don't take for granted the strength and dexterity it takes, and I didn't think about this 30 years ago, but it does take a lot to wrestle a tree into the house, and I thank God that I can still do it. I take out the ornaments, and I remember the people, some of them, that gave them to me in the times, and sometimes I pray for some of those people. I listen to Christmas music, and I sit back, and I reflect, and I feel grateful for God's provision. And there's really nothing spiritual about a tree and decorations in themselves, but the tradition is meaningful for me. And I think if I didn't do the hard work of putting up a tree and decorating, I would miss out on the holy wonder and joy of Christmas. And in our Christmas series, Fulfilled, we are looking and inviting you to sit in the holy wonder and joy of Christmas. We're looking at how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, and we've looked at prophecy over the last few months, and we're seeing that Jesus fulfills prophecy in a higher, greater, better way than anyone expected. And today we'll look at Jesus as king. We can recognize who Jesus is and worship him as king, or we can miss out on the wonder and joy of Christmas. In today's passage in Matthew 2, we'll see two groups of people. One group that experienced the holy joy of Christmas, and one group that missed out. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn with me to Matthew 2. We're going to look at Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. 
Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And as you know, the story goes on, and Herod really doesn't want to worship this baby. And if you were new to this story, you might wonder, You might wonder, I'm going to leave this here. You might wonder why King Herod and the Magi had such a different reaction. Why they responded so differently to the prospect of a king. So let's start with King Herod and his advisors, the priests and teachers of the law. They should have known better, right? They knew the Old Testament prophecies. They knew that a king was coming. But when they heard about the birth, they didn't get excited about a king. They felt disturbed along with Herod. And right off the bat, Matthew gives us a clue. He tells us in verses 1 to 2, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? And right off the bat, he sets up this contrast and identifies this baby as a king. And we have King Herod and this baby born King of the Jews. There's an actual king and there's an up-and-coming king, a potential rival, a threat to the kingdom. And if you know anything about kings, you know that this threat is a very big deal. Right? Kings are all about protecting their kingdoms. Back in 1 Samuel, when the people of Israel asked Samuel for a king and pestered him to give them a king like everybody else had, Samuel warned them that having a king would not be very pleasant for them. A king would take their sons and daughters for their household and for, to serve in his armies. A king would take their crops and their flocks, their cattle and their sheep for his own use and his own pleasure. A king would look out for himself, for his own needs first. And that's what happened with all the kings of Israel. They looked out for themselves, for their wealth and prosperity before the needs of the people. And if you watch The Crown on Netflix, or any of the recent Princess Diana movies, or if you follow the Prince Harry and Meghan Markle story, you know this is true today, too. The purpose of the monarchy is to preserve the monarchy. That's what kings and ki queens do. Princess Diana was a threat. 
Meghan Markle is a threat. And this baby born in Bethlehem is a threat, too. So it's no surprise that King Herod was disturbed. But it is a little surprising to me that the priests and teachers of the law didn't get at all excited about this. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They knew a Messiah was supposed to come. And they probably longed for and hoped for this Messiah to come, too. The scriptures told of the promise of a forever king in the Davidic covenant. God had told King, Samuel, king David back in 2 Samuel 7.16, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And the priests and rabbis knew these prophecies. They knew the prophecies of the prophet Micah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Matthew 2 quotes Micah 5.2, which foretells Bethlehem as the birthplace. But in the book of Micah, a few chapters before this, Micah had earlier condemned the leaders of Israel. In Micah 3, verses 1 to 2, he said, Listen, you teachers of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones? And that's what the corrupt, evil leaders in Micah's time were doing. It was the flawed leadership that we talked about a few months ago in Israel. But in contrast, in Micah 5, Micah points to a different kind of leader. In Micah 5, too, which is quoted in Matthew, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, this ruler will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This is not another self-seeking, self-serving, self-interested king of Israel. He will shepherd his flock and care for his people. His strength and majesty will be for them, not used against them to enslave them and they will live securely. He would be a king who loved and cared for his people, provided for them, looked out for their interests. And not just for Israel. Micah says that this will go to the ends of the earth. This is no ordinary king. God's idea of a king is so much higher than ours. Jesus is not a self-serving king. He's a king who cares for his people with peace and justice. Jesus came to rescue and save, to bring restoration to broken lives, and he healed the sick, set free from demons. He reached out with compassion to the lost and oppressed. He offered rest to a people who were weary and burdened. And the priests and the teachers of the law, they knew these scriptures, they longed for the Messiah, but they didn't investigate or try to find out, find out anything else about this, this baby born king of the Jews. After all, these magi were just foreigners. What did they know? Why should they listen to them, to the, to the magi? And they thought it was better to just tell Herod what they knew and let things go. And rather than joy and excitement, they merely advised the king, and they missed out. And really, who could blame them? They didn't get any notification from God. They didn't get a star in the sky 
or a message from an angel or a dream or a vision. God didn't notify the important people of his day. Joseph and Mary, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they all got word from an angel of the Lord. And they were just ordinary people, common people, that God chose to be the parents of Jesus and John the Baptist. The shepherds were watching their sheep on a hillside, and angels filled the sky and proclaimed the birth of the Savior. They were just poor peasants, poor people, working-class people. And God chose them to hear good news of great joy. An old man and woman named Simeon and Anna were in the temple, and they recognized the baby as the Messiah as soon as they saw him. And they were old people. God chose them. He revealed through the Holy Spirit so that they would know the birth of the king. And the Magi saw a star in the sky, and they followed it. They weren't even Jews. They were foreigners. And God led them across borders to worship the king. God revealed the birth of the king to ordinary people, to people that were poor, to people who were oppressed, to old people, to foreigners. And King Herod and his advisors received no such notice. They didn't really know that this was the king. They had no idea. And Micah 5, 4 says, they will live securely, but then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. They didn't know Jesus would be this kind of king, one who cared for his people first. But he wasn't just a king who cared for his own people, Israel. He cared for all people. He was not just a king for important people. He was a king for all people. And he came to rescue the whole world to the ends of the earth. And this is the second way God's idea of king is so much higher than ours. Jesus is not just for chosen people. He's a king for all people, offering peace and joy to the world. Jesus didn't just look out for his own. He's not just for other people. He came for us to offer salvation to all people, to forgive the sins of all who believe, to die on the cross and solve the sin problem once and for all, for all humanity and for us. In a commentary, Joel B. Green says, Jesus took this Old Testament concept and transformed it from a narrow-minded nationalistic hope to a universal spiritual order in which humankind could find fulfillment of its ultimate desires for righteousness, justice, peace, happiness, freedom from sin and guilt, and a restored relationship to God, an order in which God was king. And he adds, this has as great a relevance today as it ever had. Jesus is holy, set apart, different from any other king and any idea of king. And like Herod's advisors, we can know scripture and we can believe that Jesus is king, but still miss out. We can believe in Jesus as savior, but not live with his rule and his power in our lives. We love Jesus, but we also love being kings in our own little kingdoms. We love wearing the big crown and thinking we are in control and we know what's best. And we can live with stress and fear and insecurity and worry, thinking we decide what's important, how we live. We can protect our own little kingdom, protect what we have rather than letting Jesus be king. And we can miss out on the peace and joy he offers us. 
And I know this because I know it's true for me a lot of times. I recognize this in myself. And especially over the last few years as I've watched current events unfold and watched the news, sometimes I've thought that it seems like the apocalypse is coming soon, that the end is coming. And I'm not carrying a sign saying the end is near, but it does feel like sometimes that the world is falling apart. And Christians in every age have thought this. But now there's the pandemic, the lawlessness, there's climate change, there's global conflicts, and it feels sometimes like the world is falling apart. And it's true that every generation thinks this, that the world is so evil that it cannot continue. And it's true that Jesus said, no one knows the times or the seasons, and we don't know when. But I was convicted when I realized how I was thinking about this. When I contemplated the possibility that the world can end in my lifetime, my initial response was fear and worry, which is really my response to everything. But I felt urgency about voting for the right person to fix everything. I felt frustration with religious leaders who don't seem to care. And I thought about the destruction and the loss of what's familiar and comfortable to me. And again, no one knows when, and I don't want to scare you. I don't know when, either. But I do want to say that fear and worry is the wrong response when we think about Jesus coming again. When we believe in Jesus and live by faith in a sovereign, powerful, good God, fear and worry is the wrong response. We should be responsible citizens. We should vote, but not put our faith in political leaders to solve the problems of our world. We should act responsibly, but not panic that it's up to us to fix everything. When we do that, we're more like Herod and his advisors, trying to protect our own little lifestyles, our own little kingdoms, and keep what we have. Our response to this broken world and the possibility of the end times should not be to freak out and try to control it. We live responsibly, we act justly, and we live by faith in Jesus. Jesus is coming again. He is the true king. We don't know when, but we who believe in Jesus should look forward to his coming with anticipation and joy, not with fear and worry, because only Jesus can bring real peace. No person or ruler can solve the problems of this world. Only Jesus, the reign of King Jesus, will bring peace and light to this dark world. And we live with peace and hope, loved and secure, because we know Jesus as king. And I can respond to current events and think and feel fearful, like Herod and his court. I can feel threatened and fearful anytime things don't go the way I think they should. I can feel fearful anytime I don't understand why things are happening. I can try to take control anytime I don't get my way. And we can live with the unbelievable burden of thinking it's up to us, that we are in charge, that we have to decide what's important and how to live and where we belong. We can think our future lies in what we do, what we have, what we achieve, and what people think of us. Or we can be more like the Magi. The Magi saw that the true king was coming, and they were full of 
and anticipation. They came all in, worshiping him. They brought gifts of their earthly treasures to honor him and worship him as king. And they knew that he would be higher and greater than anything they expected. They left it all behind to worship the king. Matthew 2, verses 9 to 11 tells us, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we don't really know much about the Magi, except what Matthew 2 tells us. It tells us that they were from the east, and they came because they saw a star. They were not kings, but they were probably pagan religious leaders, probably traveling from Persia or Babylon in the east, probably traveling eight to 900 miles over the course of over a year, almost two years. They traveled a long distance seeking the king, and they came at great cost, leaving their homes, their families, their normal lives. They came to worship him. It's possible they knew a little about the Messiah from dispersed Jews or from a remnant of Jews that remained in Babylon after the exile, but they didn't worship the God of Israel, Yahweh, God. They probably worshiped pagan gods, looking to the stars and the physical world to find meaning. They didn't know God, but they saw that a new star had arisen in the sky, and God revealed to them that a king was born. They weren't threatened or afraid. They were full of wonder. And God led them to follow the star and to seek the king. They came to worship and honor Jesus as king. And theirs was the right response. The right response, and really the only response, to the coming of King Jesus is worship and joy. The right response is worship and joy. The Magi didn't really understand who Jesus was or what kind of king he would be. But God put a spark in their minds and a desire in their hearts. And he gave them a star to follow. And they followed. And they came and they worshipped him. They interrupted their lives to find this king. And they did not miss out. They experienced joy, overjoyed in seeing the king. And that's the experience God invites us to in our everyday lives, but especially now at Christmas. God puts a spark in our minds and a desire in our hearts for something more, something greater, something better. And even as we decorate and shop and get caught up in the busyness of the season, we long for more, don't we? We long for that transcendent peace and hope that sense of joy and love and belonging, the riches that Jesus offers. It's why I put up a tree every year, because I want those little moments, those holy moments of joy and wonder. And we can interrupt our busyness and our activities to recognize Jesus as king and to worship him. The right response to the coming of the king is worship and joy. And when I talk about worship here, I'm not just talking about singing songs which is the first thing we always think about. But I'm talking about an attitude, 
a thought, a way of thinking, a lifestyle, a continual daily awareness of the presence of Jesus with us. And it comes from inside us, not just from our lips. Worship is a commitment of the mind and an attitude of the heart. It's cultivated and expressed in our songs and in what we do. But it comes from our recognition of God's presence, of that desire to honor and glorify him. And we seek to live, talk, and think in a way that honors God and worship him in our daily lives. Worship elevates our minds and hearts to a higher plane where that love, joy, hope, and peace is above the fear and worry of everyday life. So let's do a little exercise in worship. Think now of the most beautiful, good thing you can think of. Picture it. Close your eyes if that helps you. Just think of the most beautiful, good thing you can think of. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a loved one or a grandchild. Maybe it's something in nature, a waterfall, a garden. Maybe you hear beauty in music, in Mozart, in worship songs, in Adele or Christmas carols. Maybe you feel the sublime in a taste of food and the accompanying smell, a juicy burger or freshly baked bread. Just think about the thing that you think is beautiful. And if you're drooling over something, feeling lifted up in seeing or thinking about or tasting or hearing something beautiful, what you're feeling right now is worship from inside you. Worship is the appreciation of beauty and goodness. Now, take that appreciation and take it a step further. Don't just worship the things. Think about the God who gave you the capacity to appreciate beauty. Think about the God who gave you the capacity to smell freshly baked bread or to appreciate a sweet, juicy pineapple or to marvel at Yosemite Falls or to feel the warmth of the sun or the warmth of friends or the comfort of family. God designed you to appreciate things but to worship him as the creator and sustainer of all those things. When you feel goodness and beauty, worship Jesus. Think of Jesus. You can open your eyes now. But when you think of Jesus, maybe you just picture a baby in a manger. But when you picture Jesus, picture also the everlasting water so that you never thirst again, the fresh bread of life so that your hunger is always satisfied. Picture the safe, secure arms of a perfect, loving, heavenly parent. That's worship. It's to recognize Jesus, to see the beauty of Jesus, to listen for his melody, to feel the love, to taste the fruit, to recognize that whatever beautiful things, good things you have, God is the creator, author, sustainer. He's the giver of all good things. Think of Jesus as the giver of all those good things in your life. What a beautiful name is the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. 
God is beautiful. He is the author of beauty. And it's when you see who God is, when you recognize what he's done in your life, that's when you begin to truly worship him all the time, daily, and in all the experiences you have through the week. Worship is not just singing. It's not just coming to church. It's not just listening to the sermon. It's higher. It's the awareness of his glory and beauty in our everyday lives. The right response to the coming of King Jesus is worship and joy. So how do we grow that experience to really recognize him? Read slowly and reflect on the words of scripture. Those words that are beautiful to you, the Christmas story, the love of Jesus. Listen to and sing worship songs that move you during the week. Enjoy nature or good food and be mindful of the God who gave them to you. And spend time with people, family, friends, small groups that help you see Jesus, that point you to his goodness. Stop and take time to recognize who God is and what he's done, that he is the author of all that's good in your life. Honor and glorify him. Praise and thank him. Ask him for what you need. And all of that is worship. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for you. We worship you and we praise you. As we think about Christmas, we think about the gift of your son. We think about your offer of, of real life, of abundant life, of love, everlasting love, unconditional love. We worship you and we thank you and we ask you to help us remember your goodness throughout the week. Thank you that you are here with us. In Jesus' name, amen.